I invite you to turn to our main passage this evening, which is going to be 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the Old Testament, whole section of historical books. Now, maybe you weren't here, or maybe it helps to be reminded. Two weeks ago, we left off in this story as King David was attempting to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city of God's people into Jerusalem. And he ran into a problem as he went. A man touched the ark and was struck down, and we saw that this underscores both the peril and the privilege of being in the presence of a holy God. And now we pick up in the story as the ark is about to enter the city of God. Now, I was talking with Reverend Vandermulen last Sunday about this coming section and being reminded that there are parts of the Old Testament that on first and maybe on tenth reading, you go, what is the significance here? And then other parts are much more clear. And he shared this quote with me. I wish I had heard it earlier. And unsurprisingly, it comes from R.C. Sproul. Regarding the previous section with Uzzah, it says, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was that he assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. And it just encapsulates it. The, the lesson in that passage is so clear. But now we're coming into a section where it may not be as clear on the surface. So as you listen, fully engage your mind, ask the Lord, as we will ask together, for him to lead you into truth here. And for context, we're going to begin at verse 12 as we observe two very different responses to an opportunity for worship. Beginning at verse 12, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, 
had no child to the day of her death. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father in heaven, we ask that you would please lead us into the truth. Please fix our eyes upon Christ and help us to learn how through this text he is present. We ask that you would fit us to worship you in the way that you desire. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the challenges of studying the biblical narratives, the stories of the Bible, is that in many cases, the lesson is not right there on the surface. Sometimes it's apparent, sometimes it's not as apparent, which means that it's possible to interpret things wrongly. First blush, you read something and you think, oh, well, what does this mean? And maybe it means this. Your interpretation, my interpretation on first blush could be mistaken. And it could be something that is simply unhelpful or it could be an interpretation that is in fact harmful, whether to yourself or to other people. You could have an unhelpful interpretation of this. I went looking, you know, how have people taken this passage? What is the lesson here? And of course, you find people making light of it and saying this is a warning to all wives not to laugh at the dancing of their husbands. Not to make a mockery of that. That's unhelpful. But we should notice something here. This involves, it seems clear in the text, some connection between her action and the Lord's providence in that she doesn't bear children. And that's never a light thing. And so some have read this and fearfully assumed maybe this means that God strikes people with infertility who don't respect their spouse or maybe publicly embarrass him. And I have total confidence, sadly, that with the number of Christians who have lived throughout the ages, that there have been women who were infertile and they inferred from a passage like this, that's a punishment on me in some way. And so is that what is being said here? Is the main lesson here, watch out or you'll be struck with infertility. Now we should bear in mind a number of things here. On the one hand, yes, the Lord does at times in scripture and in life use physical ailments to chasten his people or to judge unbelievers. You can't deny that if you're going to take the Bible seriously at all. You have Miriam, Moses' sister, who is struck with leprosy for a time. You have Zechariah, who is struck with muteness. Uh, You have Herod, who is not a believer, and he is struck down in his steps, basically, with a, dis- a sickening disease. The Lord does use ailments to chasten people whom he loves and to judge people who are opposed to him. On the other hand, there's something you and I don't have. We don't have inspired authors writing scripture about us to help us interpret the cause and effect of particular sins and their consequences in our life. And so I would counsel you, be very cautious about connecting particular sins to particular consequences unless they're very obviously associated. Obviously, if somebody's liver is failing because they drank a whole lot, there's a connection there, and God has built in certain natural consequences. But in general, it's much safer to simply say, if I have any trials, well, I'm a sinner, and the Lord loves me, every father chastens children he loves, but not to infer that he is doing so to you in connection with one or another particular sin, let alone somebody else's. Also, you should take note of this fact. God's interventions of that sort are relatively rare in Scripture. 
Ananias and Sapphira, cases like that are not occurring on every page. The Lord makes examples so that through all time his people see this is how he feels about sin. But we should not leave to assume that the Lord is anything other than slow to anger. He's very patient. This is the only instance in the entire Bible. And if this Bible were printed out in you know, normal size font on normal thickness paper, it'd fill up lots of volumes. It's a huge, really, it's a big collection of books. This is the only instance in the entire Bible where it seems that the Lord grants that somebody should be permanently without children. There are lots of instances where he allows people to be infertile for a time as he's working something out, but here it's permanent. And that seems to mean this is exceptional. We should not infer our own story into it. And that the Lord wants us to take note of what's going on in the text here. I believe we're going to see tonight that this is essentially a call not to place ourselves above joining with Christ and his people, both in the humiliations but also in the joys of worship. That's what we're essentially called to in this. And the Lord makes a heavy point because he's dealing with a person with great influence Michal was not just anybody. She's the queen. She has a massive influence upon the people of God. Those who have been entrusted with much will be held to higher account. Those who have received great light receive more stripes, according to Jesus. And so we are being warned not to put ourselves above joining with Christ and his people in the humiliations and the joys of worship. Now, as we consider this, we're going to do so under three main divisions. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. The first is not really a lesson. First, I simply want to help build out something of this story to let, hopefully, sink in what the real issues are in this passage. We don't gloss over anything. I know that it's one of the cardinal sins of pastors to just repeat the same story again that we just heard, but here we do need to observe some particular details. First, This was certainly one of, if not the most extraordinary occasion of public worship in all of David's lifetime. Probably in the history of Israel, it's one of the great instances of worship. This is arguably the apex of David's reign. Solomon will one-up him on actually getting to dedicate the temple. But for David, bringing in the ark is literally monumental. Try to picture the scale of the pageantry in verse 15. Listen again. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly how many were all the house of Israel. And of course there are individuals who are left behind taking care of the houses and this and that. The point of that idiom is just to say, Practically everyone who's anyone who could possibly be there was there. We're talking a crowd of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people gathered to Jerusalem. Picture the biggest, almost the only way we can compare this are either in enormous concerts or enormous protests. It's rare to see people gathered in the way that people were gathered for this event. It's a massive Massive event taking place. And it says that they were shouting, and there's the sound of the horn, and this is the shofar, the ram's horn, and I'm not going to imitate one. Look one up if you want to find. They're loud. Loud and majestic. 
and thousands of people shouting together joyfully. Can you imagine the energy of the crowd? What a dream. If you could go back in time to witness something, this would be one of those days you want to be there. The incredible energy and the joy of God's people. As for a time, the ark was gone, and now it's coming in, and this represents access to the covenant God. Now, how would you expect a ruler, the king, to dress for that sort of occasion? How historically do kings tend to dress for, you know, something that's like the equivalent of a coronation or a royal wedding? Well, you can even just look in recent history. We have had some royal weddings in different countries. Typically, they put on their finest regalia. This is a time to show and to make clear who they are. What is their place? And that can be justified. It's not just about, you know, some pomp or pride. I represent the people in the interest of the people. And really, I'm wearing all this for them to show the glory of our great country. You might expect that of David, but notably, he sets aside his royal robes. He's not wearing them. Verse 14 tells us that he was wearing a linen ephod, and it was worth writing down, both because it was notable that a king is not in those clothes and as a contradiction to what Michal is going to say. You have to go not just by what somebody says, because people say things, but then also what was done, and we will go with the inspired author in that description of what David's wearing, a linen ephod. You say, what's a linen ephod? We don't wear linen ephods, right? But probably sometimes people in different parts of the world wear something fairly similar. It's generally a single piece plain tunic. And this would have been, it's the, the customary term used for what the priests would wear if they weren't wearing something like the high priestly gown. So this is standard priestly garb. And it probably was not unusual for people during high religious festivals to dress in a similar way, to fit in. It's maybe remotely comparable to the way that in southern states sometimes there will be churches where everybody on a certain day puts on kind of the choir robes. David is wearing a plain garment, something comparable to what an average priest would wear. Why? Why is he wearing that? Now I'll tell you, I am not certain. We can't get, this is one of the challenges of narrative, we can't get into his mind, and the text doesn't tell us precisely. There have been many guesses. One would be that he doesn't want to draw attention away from the religious character of this event. He doesn't want attention on him, it's an act of humiliation. That's possible. I think it's entirely plausible at the same time that he simply does not wish to be encumbered, encumbered by his robes in worshiping the Lord in the way that he believes he ought to be. Verse 16 and verse 14 says he was leaping and dancing before the Lord with all his might. We in the northern, I'm not speaking for everyone, but as a generality, this church uses the three forms of unity. It hails from Germany and from the Netherlands. We have inherited a tradition where the idea of leaping and worship is so beyond anything that we had ever imagined falling in line with good order, right? There are still Christians in many places that do have occasions where it is considered appropriate for them to dance and to celebrate the Lord in more outwardly enthusiastic ways. Certainly, David is not sinning in what he's doing here, and we find this language all over the Psalms as well. He's leaping and dancing before the Lord with all his might. 
David was a man known for some might. This is the man who has slain his tens of thousands, and now he's dancing with all that might directed into praising the Lord through the motion of his body. I can understand then why he would take off the robes. He says, you know, yes, I'm the king and people understand that, but I don't need to have this on. I'm, I'm going to praise the Lord and I want to be at the vanguard. I want to be at the front. I want to show the people and to set the tone for what worship ought to be like. And now verses 16 through 19 fills out the rest of the celebration when it describes how the crowds then process to a solemn installation ceremony of the ark being placed where it now belongs. Again, you can just imagine this sort of event, and there are thousands of people. You would imagine high officials have different parts involved in this. Verse 18, Then David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's not a light thing. He's on a line here where, again, there's a distinction in the Old Testament between the priests and the kings and the prophets. But David was himself a prophet, And here he is pronouncing, with the Lord's blessing, a blessing upon the people. And then it says, He distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. This is not just a picnic. Sometimes you go to weddings, and at the wedding they provide you with nice food, and that's great. But these were portions from the offerings, and they represent fellowship between Israel and God. That is significant. He provided, at his own expense, the sacrifices. Says that he sacrifices thousands of animals. And now that's being distributed enough to feed this massive crowd. That's the generosity. David didn't have to do that. Rulers don't always be generous to their people. Can you imagine? I know that some of you have planned weddings, even fairly recently. And the hand-wringing that sometimes happens over how many people do we invite? You really find out how many people am I close to once you start thinking about paying for the meals. And here David is paying for all of these people to enter into an act basically of communion with the Lord. This is an astounding day in the history of Israel, a day when thousands are joining in to worship, led by none less than the anointed king. That brings us to a question. And really the transition point here, where was Michal? Where is she? Because that will raise questions for you. Where are you at with respect to worship and with respect to the Lord's anointed? Look at me at verse 16. We're going to see here essentially the Lord begins to deal with a heart that places itself above joining in worship with Christ and his people. Verse 16 As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. Now, you can only infer so much, and we don't want to read into things that are not there. But, literarily, she is pictured as literally high up, literally looking down upon the worship, not down there. Why isn't she down there? Now, she may have had reasons, and there's all kinds of reasons to not be at worship that can be legitimate. We don't know the particular reason, but she is pictured like an observer, not a participant in what's taking place. But perhaps even more significantly, she is represented in the text as having also been absent that day from the procession 
the installation, the blessing, and the feast of communion. David has to come back. He's, he blesses the house of Israel. Everybody departs to their home. He has to come back to issue a blessing to her. And it's almost as if he doesn't want her to be left out of the blessing. He's going to bring the blessing to her. Where is she for any of that? We don't know particularly why she would separate herself from worship. Some have, I think, imposed her past experiences upon this story. They probably do play some kind of part in it. Remember, if you're not familiar, she went through some really hard things in her life. She's raised by a man who is literally insane, who tries multiple times to kill her brother. Bear that in mind. That's the kind of person she's being raised by. She's also being raised in the lap of luxury. She's the daughter of a king. That has to be a head trip for anyone. And then on top of that, she's given to David. She doesn't have a whole lot of say in that, but it does seem at first that she is in love with him. She has at least an infatuation with him. But then they're separated, and her father gives her to a different man. Then she's taken from that man and given back to David. Any one of those things could play a part in the feeling she has towards David, and the fact that he has now acquired other wives in the interim, though that was not unusual for people in his position at that time, not condoning at all, but it was not unusual. Those could shape her feelings towards David, but we have to go on the text. The text is what must drive our interpretation. Verse 16 is all that we can base for where she is despising him or why. Look what it says. She saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, which makes clear that his motives are not what she said they are. She saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Somewhere in her heart, there was disdain for the enthusiasm or the way that he's worshiping. And you get a clue what's going on in her heart in verse 20. How the king, these are her words, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Right there, her concern is, this is a day where you should be honored. But how have you been honored? Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now the word vulgar here and shamelessly These are the words of a person who is clearly angry. That doesn't mean they are faithful, and I'm not convinced. Again, he's wearing ephod. The text never goes in any way, either here or in Chronicles or Kings, to indicate that David is at fault for what he's doing. But she says he's like one of the vulgar fellows. The word vulgar here can mean empty. It doesn't have to mean morally profane. But basically, she says... My father would never have done this. You've presented yourself among the people like just anybody, dancing like a fool. This is not your role as a king. You should be high. You should be powerful. You should present yourself in authority. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. In other words, he says, it is not at all what you think it was. I'm not doing this to be seen by anybody. I genuinely want the Lord to receive the glory. Now, again, in a text like this, it's, we have to beware lionizing the actions of even the person who is more in the right. Abraham is a man of God, but he also gave away his wife. 
That doesn't mean that we should infer from those texts, give away your wife, right? Godly people, great people do things that they should not always do. I am not certain that David's tone here was the tone that he should have taken, but I do think he's speaking the truth. It has been asked before, how might things have been different if David had, instead of expressing outrage, come alongside of her? On the other hand, we cannot downplay the sinfulness of what she's done. You cannot downplay the sinfulness. It is wicked enough for a husband or wife to, and note, I said husband or wife, to publicly pour contempt on their spouse. Or even simply to despise them in their heart. God sees the heart. And bear that in mind, even if outwardly you respect your spouse, if inwardly you have contempt for them, the Lord sees that and takes no pleasure in it. But that would have been sinful enough. And on top of that, the head of her household. But she is the queen of Israel. And the queen with the longest seniority, longest tenure, she would ordinarily have the claim for which of David's sons is going to inherit the throne. She is a massively influential figure. And she's doing this not privately somewhere. You have to imagine David with his retinue. He doesn't travel anywhere alone. No major figure travels alone for obvious reasons. And she comes out and she breathes bile upon the worship and accuses him before all, it's just a show. It's not sincere. You're doing this for you. And on top of that, she has poured scorn in a way where, again, it raises the question, why are you not at these events? Wouldn't that be significant when the wife of the king is not sick or indisposed, and yet she absents herself from all of this? And so she has publicly scorned the agent of God's blessing. This then brings us to ponder the mystery of her barrenness. Arguably the most challenging part of this text. Verse 23, look with me. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It doesn't tell us how that came to pass. Its placement seems all but conclusive. There is some form of judgment here, whether coming directly from David or providentially from the Lord. This is, again, I say, the only instance where a person in the Bible is recorded as being permanently childless, where that attention is drawn to it. And we can ask the question, how was she rendered barren? It's the only time in the Bible, so we should not downplay. There's something significant here. How was she rendered barren? The text doesn't tell us, and there have been different ideas about how that came to pass. Maybe it's simply that God, in his decree, permits that David chooses... Again, there's layers of responsibility. David chooses to withhold himself for the duration of their marriage. He basically says, no, I have other options and you have so disrespected me that legally we are married, but I am withholding myself from the marriage bed and so she never has children. That is a possibility. That's a possibility and David is a man who is capable of sin and sometimes people sin even in ways that They don't think about as sinful too. However, I am more inclined for a variety of reasons to believe that David did not necessarily withhold himself, but that God did render a judgment. And the judgment ends up being on her, but also her household, and it's a reflection of God's larger judgment on the house of Saul, her father. 
Look with me at verse 20 again. Let's see what we can glean from the text itself. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said. So you have this sense of her interrupting him before he has pronounced the blessing. The blessing of the prophets is not a mere gesture in the Bible. Remember the tears that Esau cries when his brother gets the blessing first. When Isaac says, I don't have anything left. I gave it all to him. Because God appoints these men as prophets who are announcing what God shall do. And there is a level of human culpability because God appoints both means and ends. As I read this, I see a person who receives God's judgment and God's judgment is to permit her to cut herself off from the blessing. And not because she thought, you know, I really want the blessing, but then I forgot about it. If I judge by the text, the best I can seem to discern from this is that she probably did not see great weight in what David is doing. And maybe she gives lip service to the Lord, but she doesn't take it seriously. Go, well, you know, how can you judge her heart like that? She's not alone, and certainly not even in her own family. Saul, to the end of his life, is talking about God as Samuel's God, not even his own God. And there can be people who live within the covenant community for a lifetime, for whom it's motions, it's who you married, and now you're locked into this. You don't want to rock the ship, and so you go to church, and you do the things. But your heart is above the worship that you are observing. Or maybe you're open about it. You, you extract yourself from it. And so I want to bring, if I can, bring this story in some ways into our own time because I recognize that it can be hard to identify with aspects of the story. Roughly half of us here are not even women. And then none of us have ever been put in the position where we are disrespecting a, a great king or powerful person to their face. You could say, well, this isn't me. I, I, I don't really identify with this. And I can't imagine the scenario where this would happen to me. We are all confronted with essentially the same temptation. Every single one of us, essentially the same temptation. Because, again, the Holy Spirit has worked in history, but in particular through David's life, to set up shadows. These are real historical events, but they were shaped providentially to give us insight into the significance of Christ's life. Jesus is not an echo of David. It's the opposite. The clap that happens in the coming of Christ echoes backward in time. And so we hear the reverberations in the lives of those who come before. When you think about the procession of David leading the people so that they can come into communion with God and him then offering a sacrifice, pronouncing a blessing upon the people, and then bringing them into communion with God. That is the purpose for which Christ came into the world. The true anointed, the king, the son of David, the descendant of David. He came to lead us into something far more significant. Even now, the multitude of saints who have gone ahead of us into glory, can you imagine the moment you die when you enter into that worship? 
Let's suppose there were 200,000 people there in Jerusalem that day, singing and shouting and blowing the horn. But then you go from that into the presence of literally millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of those who've been gathered to glory. Angels with trumpet in hand, the joy of heaven. Christ is already leading the procession. Christ is already bringing his people into communion. He is already pronouncing blessing upon all who look to him in faith. And yet there are those who do far worse than Michal. I mean, it's entirely possible. I have misunderstood her heart. But you know your heart. I know my heart. And it's entirely possible for us to place ourselves, as it were, above Christ and his worship. To look at him and say, that is humiliating. I don't want anything to do with those low people and their way of worship. I'm embarrassed at the Jesus of the Bible. He's weak. He dies a martyr to a cause that he didn't bring about. He's not even in his right mind. I speak as a fool, but foolish people speak this way. Some who professed faith now speak this way. And what do you get for it? Christ comes to pronounce blessing upon all who believe. And the danger is that in placing ourselves above blessing and casting scorn upon Jesus and his followers and impugning all of their motives as false and, oh, it's just a a money-making scheme, explain the martyrs who gave their lives and who continue to this day if it's about the money. What you do is you cut off the lips of Christ before he has given you the blessing. Of course, God will achieve giving his blessing to his elect. But we do not walk around with an E on our forehead that we can see in the mirror. Nor can we see it on anyone else. Every one of us has to ask the question, am I placing myself above the need for a savior like Christ, one who has come in true humility, who set aside the robe of his divine glory as it were? That's what it says in Philippians. He emptied himself of what was every bit his right to be seen for what he was, God. He emptied himself and appeared not in an ephod, but in human skin, something so much more embarrassing and humiliating. To look like sinners and to dance among his people. If God was not above the cross, then you are not above anything or anyone that glorifies him. The lowest of the low is your friend now. Romans chapter 12 says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. David gave them cakes of raisins, and then they went home and they were hungry again. What God has distributed to us is the very body and the very blood of Jesus Christ, is eternal life, is a part in his kingdom. No one of us should withdraw from the blessing of worshiping him. Every one of us has a reason to rejoice. May God grant you never to be above it, but to engage it. Let's ask for his blessing on that even now. Father in heaven, we thank you for having invited us into worship with such a savior, one who did not count himself above our humility, not even above the cross, We ask that you would please grant us such humble hearts. Help us to want to go down among the lowest of your disciples.
to bring the gospel to the weakest, to those whom the scripture called the dregs of the earth. We ask that even as David said that he would be held in honor by those who honor you, that Christ would receive our honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.